0: Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I talk with Brett King about the disruption to labor markets from AI and the core skills needed to thrive in the 21st century. Brett King, welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Thanks, John. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be with you. I'm super excited for the conversation today. We're going to be talking about disruption to labor markets from AI and the core skills needed to thrive in the 21st century. Now, clearly there's all these technological disruptions happening in the world around us and add on top of that things like the pandemic and push towards utilizing more technologies and and adapting to remote work and hybrid work, distributed workforce, all of that. All of this leads into labor markets, um, but a big piece of that again comes back to AI and deep machine learning. So we're going to unpack that and then what does that all mean for the future of work? What does that mean for the skills needed to thrive in the 21st century? If more and more we have not only robotics, but uh, AI machine learning and various technologies that can displace a lot of the tasks that we used to do, you know, is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? What does it mean for what we need to be able to do in the future to be relevant in the world of work? As we get started, I want to share Brett's bio with everybody. Brett King is an internationally best-selling author, a world-renowned futurist, and media personality. He has spoken in over 50 countries, given keynotes for TEDx, Wired, Texas, Singularity, University, Web Summit, The Economist, IBM's World of Watson, CES, and much, much more. He has appeared on CNBC, BBC, ABC, Fox, and Bloomberg. King hosts the world's number one fintech radio show and podcast called Breaking Banks in 180 Countries with 6.5 million listeners. That's awesome. And he is the founder of Movin, a globally recognized mobile startup, which has raised over $40 to date and launched the first in-app mobile bank account offered anywhere in the world. What a wonderful background, a tremendous uh, background and skill set. Anything else you would like to share with listeners by way of your background before we dive on in further?
1: Uh, and I write, you know, I I, uh, I just uh, published my seventh book. So, um, you know, it's, uh, it's good to have multiple uh, income streams, I guess, right?
0: For sure, for sure. That's awesome. Uh, and and I'll give you a chance later what we can talk a little bit about your book and and no, feel course, free sure, feel sure. free to share that with listeners as well. Um, so let's start with disruption to labor markets from AI. Now again, Tons of disruption, tons of things disrupting the workplace and disrupting uh, labor markets right now. And it's a really interesting labor market, type labor market right now. Uh, And it's difficult for organizations to find good talent, Um, but you just add to the mix. You add AI and deep machine learning. So tell us a little bit more about the impacts of AI on the labor markets today. Well, I I think a lot of people sort of miss
1: this. Um, You know, technology has... um, always changed the nature of employment. So even the steam engine, you know, it changed uh, agriculture. You know, if you look at um the, the pre-industrial age, you know, United States, like 75 to 80 percent of employment was agriculture based. Today, it's like 1.6 percent. And so that's happened because of technology, the combustion engine, um, steam engine initially, then the combustion engine and then um, you know, various uh, uh, technologies associated with that. So th- this it's not um, It's not unusual to be talking about the fact that technology will will disrupt, but in terms of AI, the big shift there is that, uh, you know, when we look at core economics and the way we think about human capital in in core economics, you know, since 1776 with wealth of nations from Adam Smith, you know, the assumption has always been that if demand for a product or service increases. The way you create supply is putting more labor into the process. Yes, you need more raw materials and so forth as well, but human capital is a core component to that. What AI is attempting to do is take the human component out of a number of core processes in our economy when it comes to that supply and demand curve. And so, um, you know, if you look at the purpose of AI, AI's purpose is really to eliminate humans from the workforce in terms of the typical view of work. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that work disappears, um, but it does mean that work has the potential to change significantly. What we will remove is um, humans acting like robots, humans doing repeatable processes, you know, tasks and things that, you know, we can train robots for. So this then leads us to seeing human capital in respect to labor markets very differently. It has to be much more creative aligned, it has to be working with technology, but the potential for work itself to change is pretty significant. Um, And so, you know, I'm sure we're going to get into that.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well said. And as you mentioned, I mean, technology is always disrupted. Uh, People talk about how we're in the fourth stage, the fourth wave of the industrial revolution, right? And we're just talking about different types of technologies, different types of disruptions today excuse me um then perhaps we saw you know in the early stages of the industrial revolution but it's the same general kind of disruption uh and i like how you distinguish though uh the how ai can in large uh, part displace human beings in a lot of the types of work but it's it's the type of work that frankly i mean do i really do i really want to be doing this it in is the first really place really the key point right
1: yeah. is that do-
0: Yeah, sorry. Go go, go for it, go for it. No, no. So I think, um,
1: you know, when when I talk about disruption of um, labor markets and disruption of work by AI, a lot of people, you know, like, get very perturbed about that. And they, you know, the, there's a lot of debate that goes on about is AI really gonna destroy jobs and so forth. Look, the reality is it's already destroying jobs. And so if you, if you extend that curve as AI gets better, then it's obviously that the breadth of the jobs that it disrupts is gonna be broader. But um, that leads us to the fact that as you've rightly identified, a lot of work that people do today is not necessarily very meaningful. Um, You know, it's uh, it's work that puts money on the table. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, it it, it enables us to put a roof over our head and so forth, but, you know, it's not necessarily things that we are passionate about and so forth. This is where I think AI's true benefit to human society, and it's a very philosophical approach, is is that the nature of work must adapt. So in the future, if AI has, you know, displaced 80% of work, you know that humans do today and that by the end of this uh, century that's where we sort of predict it to be certainly by the 2040s it's going to be about half of the the jobs that we currently have now a lot of new jobs are going to be created robot psychologists robot repairmen you know all these sort of things Um, but ultimately um, what we're going to have to grapple with is that supply and demand curve humans are not going to be critical to those core economics now, that's going to create incredible wealth. Highly automated societies are going to be incredibly wealthy. And that wealth can be deployed in terms of basic services, things like universal basic income and so forth. And when we've got that um, you know, uh, core wealth in society created by highly autonomous economies, that enables us to choose what we want to do right? And, and so, um, you know, if you've got a UBI uh, structure, which most entrepreneurs talk about as um, a, as a necessary outcome of, of highly automated societies, then you can work at what you're passionate about. You can work at, at things that really make a difference. And so, when we've looked, we looked at a 72 U, UBI trials globally when we were doing research for our new book, and, you know, the one thing that emerges out of that is, is What you get a lot of criticism from uh, on conservative fronts is that if you give people stimulus payments or UBI and things like that, that they aren't incentivized to work. Actually, the trials that we've seen bore that out. uh, You know, bore out exactly the opposite. So you have a higher rate of entrepreneurship, where people create their own businesses at at two or three times the normal rate of society when they have UBI in the mix. Um, People get a lot more involved in community action and, and things that can impact people around them so you know um automation and ai like this combined with you ubi or something like it is really going to create v- um, this ability for us to to change the role of work in society where it's something we're really passionate about that really is going to make a difference rather than something that puts food on the table
0: yeah i love it i completely agree with everything you just said It's kind of the common thing uh kind of Dialogue that I often share with people as well. Will AI, machine learning, robotics, other forms of disruptive technologies um, displace some types of tasks and even some whole jobs, even some careers? Yes, yes, it will. Uh, But is it the type of work we want to be doing in the first place? Uh, For most people, the answer is no. And there will always be opportunity for human beings to do meaningful creative work. It's going to unlock new possibilities, new opportunities, in in many ways that we haven't even conceived of yet, and that's super exciting to me. And I and I think about just you know my the work that I do. I you know I, I do things like this podcast. I do a lot of the same things you do actually. I you know I write and I do consulting work. I do speaking, uh, but I'm a university professor, uh, and and that's really kind of my bread and butter. You know I, that's my main gig, and then I do all these other things on the side, and just my role as a university professor over the last 10 years has changed quite dramatically. Mm. Um, and when I first you know, came out of grad school, I got my PhD and I go and I'm, I'm teaching my first classes, you know, I'm having students literally hand in paper assignments and then I'm like using a red pen, marking it up, grading grammar and doing all that kind of stuff and i you know grading is like the worst i maybe I there's. i
1: did my stand as a, as an adjunct uh, for a couple of different universities so i'm absolutely familiar with it John.
0: yeah you know grading's not really why most people like teaching or you know if people become professors they want to they want to do research they want to teach they want to mentor students do those sorts of meaningful things and they don't want to spend a ton of time grading you know crummy Papers. <laughs> and if I am grading papers, I want to spend most of my time on the conceptual ideas of the students and helping them to further thinking, you know, not, not wasting time on comma placement and, and those sorts of things. And you know what has happened in the last 10, 15 years? There's there's technology that does that. So yeah. my students don't turn in a paper like a physical printed paper anymore. They upload it to an L, uh, a learning management system, and it then goes through various technologies to check for things like plagiarism, but also to give them feedback on their grammar and their spelling and their usage, those sorts of things. So they get all that feedback back almost instantaneously. And then the grading that I do is largely content-based, conceptual idea-based, and helping them think through things um, and I can do much more interesting types of assignments as well with the technologies that are, are around so that the time that I spend as an instructor, as a professor at the university, you know, in my full-time job, it's, it's largely as a coach, as a mentor, uh, as a facilitator, and a curator of knowledge and information for the students to prepare them with the skills necessary to be successful in the future of work and their future careers. And that is exciting to me. And I would much rather spend my time doing those things than being essentially, you know, a, a, a grader. Um, and, and there are so many instructors and professors that still to this day spend a lot of their time doing those sorts of menial tasks. Yeah. If we can get AI and other types yeah. of programs to do that. All the better and that's just one little sliver of an example of the type of work that's been you know the tasks that have been displaced it just opens me up to so much more possibility and yes. meaningful work and i love it there's i mean there's two issues
1: we're increasingly going to have to deal with that also have impact here um the first is um just Financial inclusion and, you know, inequality, increasing inequality. So as technology becomes more um, pervasive in society and automation ramps up.
0: Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Academy.
1: the gap between those participating in the tech market versus those in, in the old world you know industrial um sort of scale the gap in terms of salaries and wealth and so forth uh, increases to grow so that's a problem that um you know we have to address um and we can see you know during the pandemic for example um you know the 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 world's billionaires their wealth surpassed 10 trillion dollars for the first time Um, you know the the richest Americans uh you know their wealth increased by 1.6 trillion dollars meaning that you know the the richest 0.1 percent of you know American society now own more than the bottom 90 percent so that's an untenable situation and automation could make that worse so we have to figure out a mechanism for um fixing that at an economics level. But the second piece, which is sort of, you know, we're gonna throw in the mix here is by the mid 2030s, climate mitigation and response to climate change is going to be a massive industry. By the 2050s, we're talking about potentially half of the world's GDP deployed on climate mitigation, particularly around sea level rise and crop values and things like that. So you've got massive industrial employment opportunities coming from the climate side of things in the second half of, of the century. So you've got a lot of changes compressed into a fairly short period of time. The Industrial Revolution took really sort of 170 years or so to really sort of change society, um, you know, from the birth of things like the steam engine to, to uh, the end of the 20th century, this is going to happen over the space of 20 years. You know, And so um, that's 20 to 30 years. So that rate of change is, is going to be intense. So I think it comes back to a, a lot of this comes back to the fact that we're going to have to do some navel gazing as a society in terms of, you know, what is it about our economies that's important? Um, Is GDP growth core or is the happiness and health of the populace, you know, um, core? And, and, you know, if we look at the way um, we measure economies in the past, you know, um, if you look at those measures that economists talk to us about GDP, trade surpluses, full employment and so forth, then the U.S. is the most successful economy the world has ever seen. But if you say, does the economy cater for the core needs of the citizens, access to education, access to healthcare, access to, uh, you know, food and um, housing, you know, all of those sort of things, then there's an argument to be made that the US is a demonstrable failure in that respect. I mean, the US has, um, you know, more people living under the poverty line than Mexico, you know, on a a net basis. Um, And so um, this really, when we start to see the impact of automation, changing employment, if you don't have those, the economy supporting those core basic needs of citizens, then that That economic function becomes much more obvious in terms of the fact that the economy is prioritized towards generating wealth for the wealthiest um, of society, rather than generating um, affluence for society in general. And you can see there's a very interesting sort of philosophical debate going on now with China talking about this prosperity doctrine versus the US talking about, you know, we've got a super chat, you know, we, you know, capitalism is it, but um, we're starting to see sort of limitations in the, the core capitalist model. because of AI and automation that we have to really sort of rethink and doesn't mean capitalism is going to disappear, but there's definitely um, economic reform in terms of inclusion that's that's more critical as you get more and more automation. I hope that's not too um, economic theory-ish. No,
0: that's that's wonderful. That's wonderful. And I thought maybe we could double tap, double click on the the UBI um, element for a minute, because I think that's super interesting. And my guess is it's not something that most of my listeners have thought all that much about. So universal basic income, you know, in the last presidential election cycle, you know, there was some talk about this. Right. Um, Andrew Yang ran yes. off, right? Yeah. Right. That was like his total, his complete platform. <laughs> Basically, it's a really compelling freedom dividends. He called yes, it. it it's brilliant a, branding, actually. It's an interesting argument. Um, Tell us a little bit more about your thinking around Universal basic basic income as we move into the future economy, the future of work. Because again, you know, let's let's assume for a second that you know we we're not we're not talking about like future dystopian society, like Terminator type of um, realities due to AI, um, but we're you know we're talking more about you know positive potential from AI in developing our economies and developing our own work life, our own uh, our own experience in society where we have more time for leisure, we have more time for hobbies, we have more time for meaningful work, we can start new companies, we can provide more products and services enabled through the technology that we have. So if we're in that kind of a a situation, that kind of a future, which is what I think we'll end up in, um, not this dystopian kind of future that that fear-mongering pushes forward, um, then what role does universal basic income have? And how would you respond to someone who said, you know, who would say, well, that, that seems completely ridiculous and untenable uh, from like an economic political philosophy. Yeah, Yeah. it's socialism, right?
1: No, no. Well, you know, we've got an entire chapter on this in the new book. Um, It's called revolution risk management. And that is, you know, if you look at historical precedence of the gap between the rich and the poor that we see in economies like the US, UK, Australia at the moment, um, that in the past that has led to,
0: Oh, you just went muted. Sorry.
1: Um, it's no in the past that has led to either legislated redistribution of wealth or revolution. And so that's that's what history teaches us. Um, and so if we're going to deploy more and more AI, which the capital markets reward companies for doing because they get more profits out of those companies, then the market is going to generate less and less human jobs and more and more algorithm and AI based and autonomous jobs or or, uh, functions in the society, because that's um, productivity, core productivity in corporations. Um, Nine of the 10 largest corporations in the world today are technology companies, and they employ far less people than the equivalent blue chip you know, um, industrial twentieth uh, century, um, you know, leaders um, that had huge, uh, you know, um, human human labour workforce. So that's the that's the trajectory we're on. So then the question becomes: if you have all of these people that are displaced by automation. How do you deal with that well, you can retrain them for jobs that are now um, current so stem uh, training and things like that becomes very critical, but in that um, transition of economies from industrial economies to highly automated 21st century economies, obviously, you're going to have a lot of people that are put out of work. And so you need a safety net. So this is why we talk about a universal basic income, everyone getting 1500 or $2,000 a month enough to, uh, to live off, and things like healthcare and uh, education provided free, um, you know, to to the economy, because of the wealth that's created by the autonomy. So how do you pay for UBI? Well, we came up with four methods. The first is you could fund it by these big tech companies that are massively profitable. I mean, look at Apple; they went from, you know, they're now a two, three trillion dollar company. Uh, Microsoft. So the the amount of wealth that these technology companies capture, that could partially, you know, we could have something. For example, that every human you eliminate from the workforce, you now need to create a job program that provides them with, you know, some some um, you know future employment. So that would not necessarily be UBI, but it would would be a job creation program supported by the wealth that's created by displacing humans, right? Secondly, just the wealth generated by artificial intelligence. We believe that this could um, mass, like this could double um, the wealth in the American economy of just, over the next 20 years, uh, you know, um, in terms of wealth capture. Um, we could create central bank digital currencies that we could use for universal basic income, sort of a secondary monetary supply in some respects. Um, and then we could use things like um, technology reform, climate mitigation and other things like that to create massive job programs, again, funded by the wealth that's created from, you know, highly autonomous societies. So, there are some of the ways that we could find to pay for this. But ultimately, what automation does is automation will massively improve resource allocation. It'll make corporations and therefore economies massively more profitable. So that wealth, um, we just have to make sure that that wealth is distributed more evenly into the system than it is today um, be, you know, because of the way you know, capital markets and, and so forth work.
0: Yeah, and to your point, you know, if, if if someone is saying, "Well, that's just socialism," and you know, from an economic philosophical uh, perspective, that's that's disastrous. You know, many people would share that kind of a. a perspective. Let, let me
1: give you one quick illustri- illustration. John, yes, please. The, the please. sort of di- it, 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 it dispels that argument right? So let's look at um, healthcare in the United States, right? So um, compared with the OECD average, the United States pays twice the OECD average for healthcare. In in respect to outcomes, outcomes in the United States are often worse than, say, the Nordic regions and, and you know, parts of Europe in respect to healthcare outcomes, right? But the, on the cost basis, when we talk about something like universal healthcare, we get a lot of pushback because you know, it's as perceived as socialism. What we show in um, the new book, The Rise of Technosocialism, is that we could reduce the cost of healthcare, the total cost of healthcare in the United States by 70% with a range of new technologies. So artificial intelligence used in diagnosis, um, 40% of diagnoses of uh, conditions in the United States is incorrect. That's why you always ask for a second opinion. 40% of the cost of the healthcare system today is administrative costs. We could eliminate most of that with robotic process uh, automation. Then you get into things like gene therapy and personalized medicine and other technologies like that, that again, radically change the effectiveness of healthcare. So this is what I would call capitalism at its best, the fact that if we apply these technologies to healthcare, we end up with universal healthcare model where healthcare is free to every American at 30% of the current system costs. So then the question is, why would you ever argue against that? No, I mean, what, what could be possibly be an argument in getting lower cost of the total system in terms of taxes, and providing everyone with better outcomes. I mean, that's essentially what we're talking about here. Highly automated governments that are just more efficient at providing services to citizens.
0: Yeah, and I I really, I hope we can get past, you know, kind of our current political ideologies (laughs) to think about these arguments, right? And that's why I I was, you know, the, the, um, kind of the devil advocate kind of argument, and I, I think is essentially a straw man argument. Uh, and you just responded to it very well. Uh, we, we need to get out of sight our, of our limited ideologies and recognize that the future is gonna be different than what we've experienced in the past. And and our, our current ways of doing things will, as you described earlier, the historical track record is you, you end up with revolution. <laughs> uh, yeah. either, either governments will proactively um, put in place Uh, policies that will allow for a more equitable distribution or you end up with revolutions and we don't want that so anyways all all super interesting not ideal not ideal ideal. Brett it has been a real pleasure talking with you I know at the time I'm gonna have to let you go but before we part ways today I wanted to give you a chance to share with listeners how they can connect with you where they can find out more about what you're doing where they can find your book and then give us a final word on the topic for today.
1: Thank you. I appreciate that. So you can go to brettking.com, double T, um, and you can find my website, which uh, will give you access to sort of my platforms um, in terms of the book. It's called The Rise of Technosocialism. You can go to riseoftechnosocialism.com or technosocialism.com if you want to find out a little bit more about the book. Um, We chose the title. It's a little bit controversial because of the word, but we're really talking about sort of optimal humanity and um, uh, techno collective, uh, techno, it's very techno optimistic. Um, so by all means, check it out. You can follow me on Twitter at Brett King, I'm on LinkedIn and Facebook and those other platforms as well. But um, I really appreciate the opportunity, Jonathan, uh, John. Um, it's It's been great discussion.
0: Yeah. So much fun. Thank you, Brett. It's been a pleasure. I encourage listeners to reach out, get connected, find out more about what Brett can do for you. Check out the book. And as always, I hope everyone can stay healthy and safe, that you can find meaning and purpose at work each and every day. And I hope you all have a great week. Bluer than Indigo Leadership, the journey of becoming a truly remarkable leader.